what is happening out there, guys? And uh, don't adjust your set because uh, it's uh, me, Adam, actually, that's hosting the show because we've got a special extra show for tonight. And we're talking about the national teams. And I'm joined with the usual gang of gentlemen for this uh, for this uh, show. And uh, James, Alex and Scott, how are you guys? I'm going pretty well so far. It's uh, nice being able to sit back and let someone else take on the uh, bullet of hosting. So good luck with that. Am I being replaced here? What's going on? <laughs> no, no, it's, just an, it's an extra show. So uh, like I said, I'm having having a debut. So hopefully you know, I'll try and keep it on the rails. So, anyway, Alex, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, uh, Adam. Uh, it's a pleasure to join you all again. And uh, look forward to uh, discussing the national teams with you all. Yep, and that's and that's why we're gathered here today. Um, obviously, Socceroos have been in action in their World Cup qualifiers. Um, we'll start with the two games that uh, have just been played over the week, and we'll start on Thursday night when the Socceroos took on Saudi Arabia at Combank Stadium in Sydney, and it was a nil-all draw between Australia and Saudi Arabia. I guess my first question to you will be to you, Scott would be the starting eleven s- selections. Um, you know, the midfield of Frustic, Jago, Irvine, did that work? The midfield kind of did work in the sense that they actually did play. Quite, I was really a big fan of Arjun Frustic. I think he's really good in that role, that attacking role. I think he's going to fill a role that we don't really have a lot of players for in the national team. But with the midfield particularly, I, I'm i not the biggest fan of Jimmy Jago, it's fair to say. If you follow me on social media, I made that very, very clear over the last <laughs> week. But... I do think he played quite well in that role against Saudi Arabia. I just think we didn't play well at all against Saudi Arabia, really, to me. I mean, I just it wasn't a very it wasn't that good, was it? I mean, the midfield to answer your question functioned pretty well, but across the board they seemed to start with a lot of energy and then really fade by the end of the game, didn't they? Yeah, I felt that um, obviously as well with with the midfield as well that uh, the plenty of chances were spurned and, and wasted. I didn't get the cut on top of that, and I'll direct this question to you, Alex. Um, yep. Matt Leckie at number nine. Um, usually, he's he's predominantly a, a winger. Did, did, how how did you see that? Oh, I thought that was a uh, another Arnie masterclass in what not to do uh, in terms of team selections. Um, to be quite honest with you, it, it reeked of the uh, Aaron Moy playing left midfield against Japan. Um, really got no idea what was going on there, to be too quite frank. And 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 on top of all of that, when was the last time Matt Leckie played a game? I, I can't even remember. It was like last, uh, you know, months ago when the A-League season finished. How is he match fit? Like, you've got Mitch Duke, who's a proper number nine, on the bench. He's been playing regularly. Yes, it's in J in J two, but he's playing regularly. He's a number nine. Surely you want a focal point in your attack. Apparently, in commentary, it's five months that he that Matt Leckie had not played. So okay. it was there it was go. a uh, head scratcher. James, What's... I I was a little bit surprised at the makeup of that uh, front line, mostly because you did have recognised strikers on the bench. Obviously, Mitch Duke and. If you are going to take a rusty striker, what was wrong with Jamie McLaren? He could have made those runs in behind uh, the Saudi defence. But in terms of the overall opinion on the game, I'm, I wasn't as downcast about it in isolation watching it on Thursday because Saudi Arabia is a good team, and you know they just do deserve to be treated with a little bit of a little bit more respect than what I would have seen online. Thinking that Australia should have 
run them over, whether it was, you know, down to the fact that, they, you know, they were at home and playing in front of fans for the first time. A draw against Saudi Arabia in isolation wasn't the worst result, but I think in the bigger picture now, especially with the result we'll get onto a little bit later, it really was, you know, a two points dropped in my mind because, yeah, it, it did feel like a heavyweight bout uh, between the two of them where they traded chances, but the Socceroos really should have won that game. Yeah, look, um, the Green Falcons, they normally um, don't travel so well. In fact, it's the first time during the whole qualifying they'd left the Middle East. So is it a case, then, uh, Scott, that uh, are they a bit better than we sort of gave them credit for? I think they're back to the sort of strength we used to know Saudi Arabia to be, right? I mean, they were a perennial qualifier in the AFC before Australia joined the Confederation in 2006. So I think they're getting back to what we've known them to be. And there's obviously a lot of money going into sport in Saudi Arabia at the moment for a whole bunch of different reasons. We know that they've just purchased a Premier League club. We won't go into any of that. But there's a lot of finances <laughs> being put into football in Saudi Arabia. And you're starting to see the benefits of that. They're producing a really good team. And they were they were quite, they were were really impressive in that game. They have make, made real strides over the last couple of years. I mean, that's the best Saudi Arabia team that I've seen in Australia play, that's for sure. Yeah, I think it's um, obviously, the, we talk about the conditions as well. Uh, that Alex, the, the rainy conditions, do you think that actually had a factor on either side and I just in, gen, in general, the game itself? You know, did that, that play a factor? Yeah, 100% it did. I think, um, let's be quite honest, I think Saudi Arabia came with the intention to nick a point. Uh, the rainy conditions really played into their hands there. And uh, you could probably portion some of the, the the lack of fluidity in the soccer's attack to that wet weather. You don't want to make excuses, and, and believe me, I don't. Um, but I think it did play its part in, in the way that Australia couldn't distribute the ball as they wanted. Uh, the, 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 the movement was pretty lacking as well. I think Martin Boyle was probably our, be- our biggest threat down the right. And a lot of the passes that were into him were ordinary to say the least. And, and he had to work to make that space and, and to beat his man, um, largely t- due to the conditions, I'd, I'd probably say. Yeah, I think also as well, um, obviously it was a very tight first half. Second half, um, but I guess the first part of it, James, I'll come to you on this. Um, I guess the Socceroos were wasteful. They had a couple of good chances where they probably could have and should have scored. Uh, a Jackson Irvine sort of um, scuffed shot sort of comes to mind straight away. But um, yeah, did uh, were, were the chances there for the Socceroos or were they just, just playing out wasteful? They created the chances to win. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it in my mind. They absolutely had the chances. And there was one where I was ruining my uh, depth perception on the TV screen that I was watching it on because <laughs> I can't remember who had the shot in the end, but I thought it had gone in. I was you know, up on my feet getting ready to celebrate until uh, I realised Simon Hill was telling me it was behind for a goal kick. They had the chances. They had the quality to win the game. But then again, so did Saudi Arabia. And that's what happens when you have a very even contest between two good sides. And just on the way that Saudi Arabia played as well, they were absolutely in it for the draw. They would have been much happier splitting the points. And you could see with their, let's call it gamesmanship, we could think of another uh, 12-letter word that may not be uh, broadcastable. 
<laughs> Say it anyway, it's fine. <laughs> uh, poop housery. Yeah. We'll uh, give it. Like, we'll give them the credit there. They were able to come out and uh, dictate enough of the game to make sure that they were in the mix as uh, it went along. And that it was draining conditions. And this is a question that I want to put to all three of you, and I'll let you go for it, Adam. Do you think this is where playing in Australia might have played a little bit of a role because it is a much longer flight for the European-based Socceroos as opposed to just having to fly to the Middle East? Yeah, it's an interesting one um, about about sort of at the end of where it's perceived as a home game. But you're right. It, um, a lot of the players, especially with the European base team predominantly, it does actually turn out. And this is sort of the problems not only in just this campaign but in past campaigns where you have a predominantly European um sort of, you know, influ- influence in the scene and base that, that yeah, that in a way, uh, it's actually probably worse than, uh, so, you know, maybe if they played this game in Riyadh, it may have been a better um, sort of outcome, but um, sort of as, as well on that, and, uh, and James, you brought it up as well, the gamesmanship, and you did hear there was a lot of complaining and car- carrying on about that. Uh, this question's for you, Scott, that, um, you know, is this, I'm surprised that you know the Saudis and and most other you know Asian teams seem to do this, and we we here in Australia seem to always um, be up in arms about it. You know, should we be you know understand this is part of the game, whether we, we like it or not? Play acting and gamesmanship in Asian football it's never happened before that. No, that's never <laughs> ever happened. It would never <laughs> ever happen in Asian football. But look, it is it is just the, the part and parcel of the way that the game is played in. The, in Asia, we've seen that from the very minute Australia joined the Confederation nearly 20 years ago now. So this is just what we have to accept and expect is going to happen. And we just have to keep our cool as a country and as a team on the field and get accept it's going to happen and just keep playing. And despite all of that, Adam, they still created two or three great chances in the last 15 minutes. If there was going to be a late winner in the game, it was probably going to be Saudi Arabia. So it seems to be the a method that they use to slow the game down in the second half. But it does work for for them clearly. And so one last sort of final incident to talk about from this game on Thursday night, and that's the um, ACL injury to Harry Sutar. Um, Alex, how how big a um, sort of I guess catastrophe this for not only Harry Sutar pers- uh, personally, but also for the um, this, the soccer's defence. Yeah, uh, massive blow uh, for him at a personal level. Um, that's devastating because. You know, if you want to buy into the paper talk uh, or the tabloid talk, whatever you want to call it, uh, there were lots of Premier League clubs in for him and not just sort of lower to lower-ranked Premier League teams, you know. It was more the mid-table sort of teams in, in terms of Everton and Tottenham's and things like that. So, um Go on, call Man United mid-table team. I'll let you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to, but now you mentioned it. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, um, look, you know, at a personal level, he was getting scouted by those teams allegedly. It looked like he was probably building himself to a a summer transfer move. Uh, This this injury's curtailed that. Uh, At a Socceroos level, I think it's even more devastating because he seemed to be building a really, really great um, uh, partnership with Trent Sainsbury. And I think if uh, anything being a Liverpool fan's taught me in the last uh, year and a bit is that a centre-back partnership is crucial. Uh, So if you don't have a good centre-back partnership or or you're constantly chopping and changing there, 
uh, particularly when you play a back four, it, it can have catastrophic uh, effects on on the defensive solidity of your team. So, um, devastating on on both fronts. Yeah. Um, look, finally, just one last thing before moving on. Um, attendance of twenty three thousand three hundred fourteen. Uh, look for mine. Yeah. You know, is that is that a good crowd, um, James? As far as you know, being the first Socceroos game in seven hundred odd days, or is the conditions that that sort of play factored? You know. Yeah. You know, what's your feelings on that? I can see the other two really want to tee off on this, so I'm glad you're letting me go. They can all, we can all have a say on it. I, I'm a little bit disappointed about it. Obviously, it would have been great to see Bankwest Stadium. I'm oh, sorry, Combank Stadium. I knew I was going to make that mistake. Uh-huh. Or Western, Western Sydney Rectangular Stadium, as it may have been on the night. Yep. <laughs> I, would have loved to have, I would have loved to have seen it packed out. But look, it was a miserable night. Most people, from what I can tell in Sydney, don't want to go to Western Sydney unless they're uh, being forced to at gunpoint. Um, and, yeah, even like uh, I saw Vince Regari saying before the game, that was about in the uh, area that uh, Football Australia were expecting for uh, this match because of the uh, two factors of the uh, atrocious weather and the you know whole pandemic thing, which we're unfortunately all too aware of. Scott? Yeah, uh, look, I mean, the crowd was fine, but I mean, I think it's a little bit of national team fatigue in New South Wales. They get that many, and I will go through this all later on, but they get that many <laughs> games down there. That it just seems like there's just back-to-back-to-back games all the time. They'll probably get another one in that early next year as well. But I think look, the crowd number was fine. The weather was diabolically bad, but for the first Socceroos game in two years on home, tour, you would have liked to see a full house, but 23,000 is not a bad crowd. Final word, Alex, before we move on? Oh, look, I think pretty much all my points have been made. I'll just say that um, it, w- it would be nice to see uh, a bit of a share around the country, but um, it is what it is. And uh, with, the, with the current state of things, um, you know, it was just good to see a, a, a relatively full house um, supporting our boys. And now we, we move on to uh, the game last night, uh, our time. Uh, the, against uh, China in played in Sharjah, and uh, it was a one-all draw between China and Australia. Mitchell Duke scoring the 38th minute from a uh, cross from uh, Martin Boyle, and then a very controversial uh, goal, I guess, decision, which led to a penalty by Wu Lei in the 71st minute. Um, we'll, we'll, go, we'll talk about the um, the penalty in isolation first. Uh, again, starting lineup uh, for the Socceroos. I'll start two changes with uh, Milos Degenek coming in for the aforementioned injured Harry Sutar, and Mitch Duke came in for Almobile, which, uh, which I suppose, uh, looking at the way the uh, formation lined up, uh, Mitch Duke went into that number nine role, and Matt Leckie went into where we expect him on the wing. Um, I'll, so I'll start with you, uh, Alex, on this one. Yeah. Uh, what were your makings on those changes? Yeah, Why look, um, yeah, look, uh, it makes sense to actually play a number nine in the number nine role, which was um, refreshing. Yeah, I know. Who would have thought it, hey? Um, and look, it gave the attack a little bit more impetus than it had on Thursday night, but there still seemed to be a lack of continuity and cutting edge in that final third for me. Um whether that comes down to the fact that uh, Leckie was playing on the left, I think that that might be being a bit harsh on him. Um, 
but again, there just did not seem to be that that cutting edge in 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 the front third. Um, it was a it, it was a difficult game. I I think we made the game more difficult than it should have been. If if I'm being completely honest, the uh, the, Ch- the Chinese actually uh, they they started their three naturalized Brazilians. Make it what you will um, about how that that happens or why that happens. But you get the sense, James, that uh, China, even though we beat them fairly comfortably in Doha in the match week one, uh, that they were actually going to be a bit more of a threat, uh, being this their normal home game in Sharjah. This this was always going to be a much tougher assignment for the Socceroos, but I'm I'm much more upset about this draw than I was the Saudi Arabia one because even though they had uh, brought in their three naturalised Brazilians. Australia still should have won this game. I just don't get how they can be so, I suppose, just fragile. Like, that's the most frustrating thing. They copped a bad decision, a controversial one. We'll get onto it in a little bit. But, like, there was just no no noticeable uh, response for it. And that's the most frustrating thing of it all. And, yes, okay, China, they were, you know, stronger than the side that uh, soccer was beat. Was it 3-0 in that first game? But... Australia still should have won. The best part about this game was the away kit, which I thought, you know, looked great. Other than that, I can't find a whole lot of positives to take from it. Um, well, look, let's move. Let's move on to that. Um, to that uh, very controversial decision in seventh minute. Uh, it was a penalty that was awarded for a handball against uh, James Jago after the VAR in- intervened in that from a free kick. Scott, I'll lead off with you. Um, I assume that you've obviously seen it multiple times, um, you know, in, in replays and highlights and whatnot. What was your take on it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's just, look, it's it's harsh, but I can see why they gave it. It's just it's harsh, but the my biggest issue is look, it happened. It's a one isolated incident in a game where Australia played unbelievably poorly, in my opinion. And if we if to, your, to James's point, if we played better for the rest of the 90 minutes, it shouldn't have made a difference. But in isolation, it's harsh. But I can see why they gave it. Yeah, no, exactly. I think as well, I think it's sort of consensus across the board that, uh, yeah, look, it, one one instant doesn't make a game. I think uh, we, we're sort of saying, seeing that, you know, the Socceroos really are than the goal they scored in the 38th minute. Uh, probably... Would you say, Alex, that they were lucky in the end to actually even get one point out of this? Yeah, you can probably put it that way. Um, and um, I think I just want to circle back to James's point earlier around um, how fragile we are. Um, I think there's a real – I don't want to knock Matty Ryan because I love Matty Ryan, but um, there's a real lack of leadership in the outfield for, for the Socceroos at the moment. I mean – We've been pretty lucky. We've had some pretty good captains um, in, in terms of our last captain, Mila Yedinak. Uh, we've had Lucas Neal, even though I'm not the biggest Lucas Neal fan. He was a good captain. We've had Mark Viduka. Um, you know, the list goes on. Tobin, that kind of stuff. Um, and at the moment, you look at the outfield players and you sort of go, who would you give the armband to? And that's why well, Matt Ryan's got it. Yeah, there's. I, 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 I don't know who 
is the, the the outfield leader at the moment. And I think that really is the the, the key emphasis on, on that point that you made earlier, James, in regards to the f- fragility of the team. There, there's just no one out there that, you know, when the gamesmanship was happening, was happening in the Saudi Arabia game, there was no one there to sort of calm the boys down and go, righto, let's just focus on playing our game. Don't worry about the, the rubbish that the Saudis are going on with, the Chinese are going on with. Let's let's play our game, you know? And on that as well, on that as well, if you just took the names on the sheet of paper without looking at their positions, Matt Ryan, of course, should have been captain for the Socceroos. Mm. But that is the issue you have when you've got the goalkeeper wearing the armband, where mm. at most they can scream uh, up to halfway, but anything further up the pitch, their influence really is limited unless they're going to, you know, be a Manuel Neuer or a Luke Borian and, you know, wind up in the attacking half. <laughs> but, I, it, it really is just the most frustrating thing uh, to see where you've got Matt Ryan there doing what he can, but yeah, there just wasn't a whole lot else that you could really, uh, there wasn't anyone else that really leapt out as that natural hard-nosed leader that, well, as you said, Lucas Neal, you know, his tenure with the Socceroos might not have ended all that well, but, you know, him, Yedinak, Baduka, those guys all at least gave them some, gave the team someone to look at and go, oh, okay. I'm going to go follow him. And while Matt Ryan does seem to have that sort of personality, it is the limitations of playing goalkeeper. It's It seems to be a fair lineage of, um, of Socceroos captains over the years. And at the moment, um, yeah, that's uh, Matt Ryan. You know, be, he, he seems to be the only choice and the logical choice, but you're right. It doesn't come down to one captain. So I think that's one area that seems to address it. It doesn't seem like as well that they Play, there's players that are out of the squad at the moment. Like I'm, I'm thinking of Aaron Moyer or Tom Rogic that could fill that void as well. Maybe, maybe a little bit more effectively. But I don't know if that solves that problem. Anyway, um, obviously, uh, you know, a point there for um, the Socceroos. There, if we go through the Group B standings after um, after this this uh, FIFA window. Uh, Saudi Arabia are on top of Group B with 16 points. They are still unbeaten. Uh, Japan uh, are now in second by virtue of their one to win over Oman overnight. Australia sit in third, uh, and we'll get to see what the implications of the if the uh, table finished the way it did right now. Then Oman in fourth on seven, uh, China on five, and Vietnam bring up the rear on zero points from six games. Now we talk about what would happen if the table finished right here, right now, and um, we sort of discovered, and this is aimed at you. Scott, since you're the one who discovered it, uh, was that if we were to play, if Australia were to finish third, there may be a couple of complications as far as who they play against and the uh, the path to the World Cup. Yeah, it's, a, it's not the same sort of path as it has been in previous. Remember the last time Australia went down this path four years ago, it was a two-legged tie against Syria, which they were very, very fortunate to scrape through that, and they played Honduras over two legs, but it's come to our attention that the AFC playoff in round four will be a single leg tie because of the condensed international match calendar in 2020. Obviously they have to get the world cup in at the end of the year, which means they have to to condense the league season. So they've removed a couple of FIFA windows at the back end of the year. So it's a one legged tie in May or June ahead of potentially a one or two legged intercontinental tie in the same window. So it makes it very, very difficult, doesn't it? If we're talking about a one-off game against somebody from the other group, which today would be the UAE, 
which would not be an easy game by any stretch of the imagination. I think they knocked Australia out of the Asian Cup in 2019, did they not? So the last they time did. we played the UAE, mm-hmm. it didn't go very well. So it would not be an easy tie. It's a much more difficult path, and that's not even to get into any hypothetical matchups in the intercontinental zone. So finishing third this time around is much more difficult of a path than it was last time. I'll tell you what, uh, playing in Dubai, if it was um, if it was to happen there in May, June, would be absolutely horrendous weather-wise. And we know Australia don't play well in very, very warm weather, especially in the Middle East. So I think it's one to avoid. Um, we'll move on now to Socceroos. Um, as far as the year, calendar year 2021, play 10, 10 uh, matches this year, all World Cup qualifiers, seven wins, two draws, and one loss. Um, I'll start with you, Alex, on this. On, on the, sort of the whole of the uh, calendar, what do you sort of take away from Socceroos this this uh, this year? Jeez, yeah, it's uh, it's a big spark, I think. Really, um, we you know we went on that unbelievable streak of um, was the world record breaking eleven wins or eleven wins in a row? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think that does tip into 2020. My, my apologies, but um, you know you get you, you get that. And look, I understand you got to play the um, you can only play the opposition that's in front of you. Um, but the moment we've played World Cup quality opposition, uh, we've faltered, and I think that's you know that that's the benchmark that we've set. Um, you know, in the last what 14, 15 years now that we've got to be at least playing, op, you know, World Cup quality opposition and, and, you know, giving them a red hot go at the very minimum. And for me, look, the Saudi Arabia game, yeah, we gave them a red hot go. The Japan game, we were woeful. Uh, China this morning, woeful. Um, so all in all, I think you probably give... It's 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 hard to give the soccer as a pass mark for 2021. I think, but maybe that's the 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 freshness of the the recent games. But uh, you know, it's it's bordering bordering on a pass mark um, for for me. It it is two only two points in the last nine uh, possible or the three winless now for him. So it is probably hard to sort of you know look beyond that, especially against quality opposition. Looking ahead to, uh, to what's up in 2022 and the rest of Group B and uh, Australia play at Vietnam on the 27th of January. That'll be a home tie, followed by um, playing Oman in, I would suggest, in Musket on the 1st of February, uh, a home tie against uh, Japan on the 24th of March, and then followed by uh, Saudi Arabia in either Riyadh or Jeddah. I'm not sure if that's been announced where it's going to be on the 29th of March. James, I'll, I'll kick off with you. Are these are these four games, are they must win? Well, I suppose that is a silver lining you can take out of the stumbles in the last few matches. It's that Australia's World Cup qualification future is still technically in their hands. It's obviously not ideal having to possibly rely on a final match day trip to Saudi Arabia. But overall, I, you beat Vietnam, you beat Oman, and you beat Japan, and you're in a pretty good position because right now all they have to do is just match Japan's results and beat them in Australia somewhere. We'll leave that, that rant to Scott in a little bit. But 
over overall, it, it is must win. Yes, because that's how you keep your uh, qualification future in your hands. Whether or not they can do it, that's a whole other question. But yeah, that that is at least the uh, silver lining, I suppose, you can take from this. And anyone who's listened to the show would know that I am very much a glass half full kind of person when I feel like it, at least. Scott, what's your take on it? Uh, well, you can. Be, is this where you want me to go off on about where these games are going to be? No, no, no. So, what do you think about um, about whether it's must win? Oh, yeah, they are must win. Absolutely. These, these next two games, they don't beat Oman and Vietnam in January, then they're going to be lucky to finish third. Because the last two games are very, very difficult. Japan at home is always a very difficult tie for Australia. We've got a pretty ordinary record against Japan. And Saudi Arabia are away from home. Saudi Arabia have the chance to qualify for, qualify for a World Cup at home on the final match day. That's going to be a very, very difficult trip. So I think these next two games are crucial to Australia's qualification hopes. And it will, if they win both, it puts them in a decent position going into the last two games. If they don't win it, don't win them, they're in big trouble. Alex, final word on whether this is uh, do or die for the Socceroos? Yeah, look, I'm going to follow Scott's sentiment there. Um, it's the the next two games are critical. Um, you, we can't draw. It's got to be both. They the the both got to be wins as as far as I'm concerned because um, then we play the World Cup opposition in terms of Japan and and Saudi Arabia. Um, and w- we've seen our record against those those teams of of late, and it's not flash. So, uh, yeah, boys, bring your boots because. Uh, we're going to need something special, I think. Um, as we, as I just mentioned, obviously two of those games are at home. I know, Scott, you've been itching to um, you've been itching to sort of respond to this. Uh, I guess which cities will get will actually? Um, do you think we'll get these ties, or probably more importantly, who will not get these um, these World Cup qualifiers? It's probably easier to uh, eliminate rather than uh, postulate. All right. Well, firstly, it's with these games that they've played at the back end of 2021, I want to applaud football so for being able to get both the Socceroos and the Matildas back to Australia after a very long period of time. It's been a, They've been away from home for a long period of time, and it's great to see both of them back on Australian soil. And it's completely understandable that all these games at the back end of 2021 have been in New South Wales and Sydney in particular, because they've been the only government who've been willing and able to put together any kind of plan that allows the team to travel back and play the game without two weeks worth of quarantine. So that's completely understandable. However, there, since it has been brought up about the national teams are not New South Wales-centric, according to certain people in New South Wales, that's simply not the not the case. Because I'll just, before I go into where these games will and won't be, it has been 3,445 days since there's been a World Cup qualifier here in Queensland, you think back to that game in June 12 of 2012 against Japan, which I think was a one-all draw. In terms of soccer games, yeah, was. I was there. Since 2006, when we joined the AFC, there have been 46 games played in Australia, 20 of which have been in in Sydney. If you want to go further with the Matildas, since they made the knockout rounds of the World Cup in 2015, let me check my notes here. There have been 24 games played in Australia. 15 of those have been in New South Wales, be it Sydney, various stadiums, or Newcastle. So to say it's not New South Wales-centric in terms of where these games are played, I think that's a little bit disingenuous. Now, I understand why 2021 had to be that way. Hopefully, 2022 is different. I understand Melbourne are bidding to host one of these games. 
I think Japan in Melbourne in March makes absolute sense. I'm not sure that late January in Melbourne is the right time for another big sporting event, given you've got the Australian Open on there. Where the Vietnam games played to be very interesting. You can forget Perth, given quarantine issues. I think there's a test match on in, in Perth as well. Adelaide also is probably out, given the cricket season. So that leaves you Brisbane, Canberra, Melbourne, or Sydney. And I don't think we're going to win that battle, are we? I don't. I can't see it. I mean, would I like to see it? Yes. It's probably not going to happen. And it might even be that Melbourne get Vietnam and Sydney get Japan. But... I don't think there's going to be a World Cup qualifier in Brisbane, is there? James? I'd like to think there will be. Just on that uh, June 2012 World Cup qualifier as well, my prevailing memory from that game was the very bizarre, uh, or some may say bizarre, and some may say very well-managed decision of the referee to uh, uh, blow full-time while Japan was lining up an attacking free kick in about the fifth minute of stoppage time because Japan had taken about 90 seconds uh, to strike the ball. But look, I'd love to see a uh, World Cup qualifier in Brisbane. Timing-wise for me, uh, the late January game would probably be a hell of a lot more appealing for obvious reasons. Uh, but yeah, 27th of uh, January against Vietnam. I do think the only risk you're going to run uh, with that game in Brisbane is the possibility that you may actually wind up only having about fifteen to 20,000 people at Suncorp Stadium because... Japan, much bigger draw, but unfortunately that does also mean Sydney and Melbourne are going to be in the mix for it. Sorry, just one last thing. I think that Japan game, by the way, that was meant, not meant to be in Brisbane. It, that game was moved. If you think back, because that was Japan were qualified for the Confederations Cup the year after and they had to bring for the final game into the beginning of qualifying so they could play in the Confederations Cup and Football Australia backed themselves into a corner saying the first home game of that final round of qualifying would be in Brisbane. And then they realised oh, it's the Japan game. Not, I think it was meant to be the Qatar game from memory. So it wasn't even meant to be Japan, but that's what happened. Hey, I'll, I'll take that. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, look, um, I don't see it coming to Brisbane as much as I'd... We, we'd all love it to uh, come to Brisbane. Uh, yeah, I, I think Scott's pretty much covered it. It's, it's, it's a, probably a two-horse race between Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but uh, look, stranger things have happened, hasn't they, in these last uh, 18 months or so? So let's see. <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting time, certainly. And look, we, we sort of hope, but I think it might be in vain for a Brisbane World Cup qualifier. I'll stay with you, Alex, on this one, because I know you, uh, you probably would like to comment on this. And that would be about the national team coach, Graham Arnold, who made comments yes. saying that the team is playing well despite uh, two points in the last nine. Your thoughts oh, on that? Um, I would give him my glasses, actually, to um, see, <laughs> to actually watch the, the games properly because I tell you what, he, he is a delusional bloke sometimes. Like, just some of the things he says in the press, you just go, what do you, like, what, what, what do you been, like, what medication are you on? Because, like, seriously, I, I wouldn't mind some of it. But, uh, no, in all seriousness, I don't look. I get that he's probably trying to deflect the attention from some of those poor performances on onto, you know, him saying these outlandish statements. But I just, I, I think he's got to be a little bit more honest with him. I don't know whether it's being honest with himself or or, or the boys or or to us fans. But he, he's got to find a way to 
get these performances to the level that he claims they are because I can tell you what, they, they, they don't cut the mustard for me. James? It is, it is managerial uh, 101, though, for me. Like that, It's, uh, you know, defend your team in public and be honest with them behind closed doors. And, again, not having ever really spoken to Graham Arnold, I would like to think that he is at least in the dressing rooms at training saying, guys, that's not good enough. We need to be better because, yeah, if... I, I will give him a little bit of a puff because, you know, just running through what we've seen with, you know, Brisbane Raw managers dating back to Miron Blyberg, uh, just to go back to the A-League um, era that uh, we've seen in the last almost two decades, it is, pretty, it is pretty standard, you know, backing your players in public. And Scott, you look like you really want to jump in, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that he's got the big book of excuses and delusions out, hasn't he? We saw that in these days with the Central Coast. Whenever Brisbane kept beating him, he always had an excuse or a reason reason why. He's got that big book out once again, hasn't he? I don't know what he's talking about. They have not played well this entire this entire group. I can't think of... Maybe the, maybe the China game the first time around was a, good, was a good performance. The rest of the games in this qualification series have been pretty ordinary, to say the least. I'm not going to talk about the group before because to Alex's point it's not really the highest of quality they're up against this group performance has been pretty ordinary and I just don't I don't like the style of the team at the moment I don't like the way they're playing and I hope to your point James he is being much more honest behind the scenes saying this is not good enough but we've seen this before with Graham Arnold it's just the typical what it happened you think back to Beijing 2008 where it didn't go well you think Tokyo in the in the um, Olympics this year, they started off so well, then they just completely capitulated in the final group game against Egypt. Think back to the Asian Cup in 2007, it didn't go well. It just seems it doesn't work for Graham Arnold, does it? It doesn't seem international management doesn't seem to suit him. But that is also where I will, I suppose, deflect a little bit off Graham Arnold and go back to the conversation we were having on Thursday night during the Saudi Arabia game. It does feel like the squad is just a little bit too imbalanced. Mm where they've got, they've got plenty of good players. I think they've got probably 15 or 16 good players. But at most, you can probably only fit about seven of them in the side at once. We were talking about all of the attacking options they've got. They're all better suited to playing wingers rather than uh, being an out-and-out striker. And, you know, Mitch Duke being possibly the best option at the moment is perhaps a little bit of an indictment in terms of developing, uh, you know, Mark Viduka, even a Josh Kennedy type of striker. I would have just loved to have seen Graham Arnold maybe try and, instead of trying to pick his best 11 players, maybe picking the best players for uh, the roles uh, that he wants in his system. Because right now, I just watch, I watch the Socceroos and go, okay, they can do some things well, but what do they do? What do they do? Are they best at? And that's just where I keep watching this side going, they're good, but what are they best at? Well, I'll throw a question to you, um, Alex. But of the squad at the moment, of players that are outside the squad, are there any players out there, I think there's a few obvious ones, that can probably come in and make the squad better? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think the, the two big names, of course, uh, are Tom Rogic and Aaron Moy. But um, I, I do feel like it is a little bit of a changing of the guard in regards to uh, Aidan Rustic's uh levels and uh, his star is, is on the rise at the moment. He's playing in Eintracht Frankfurt uh, in the Bundesliga. 
and he seems to have really nailed down that number 10 role. Um, in terms of others, uh, look, uh, he, he, Degenek's going to get an extended run, you'd imagine, in this side now that Harry Sutar's injured. Um, geez, uh, I'm, I'm really pushing it, I think, if, if I can think of um, anyone else in particular. So I might throw it to you, James. You look like you, you're itching at the, the bit there. <laughs> that, exact, uh, I, that exactly proves my point of what I was just saying, where, mm. okay, you bring in Tom Rogic, but... Is it at the expense of Aiden Hristic? Because mm. to be totally, I, I've been one of Tom Rogic's biggest defenders uh, over the past decade, you know, labelling him as that real match-changing uh, player. But I'm not sure I'd take him over Hristic at the moment. And the same goes for Aaron Moy, where in a vacuum, I've always said Moy is probably Australia's best outfield player. Unfortunately, I just don't think he gels well with the rest of the Socceroos midfield. And looking at some of the names that they've got, just in this current squad alone, I'm not sure that uh, Moy can really bring a whole lot more balance to the midfield. And that's where I keep going back to saying that it's just, there are external options, but it's mostly just solidifying positions that you're already strong at. Last word, Scott? Yeah, I think, in t- I think the first thing, um, Sutar's a big loss and hopefully he can get back before the World Cup because it's a, it's a long old recovery and he's obviously an incredibly tall man. So recovery from an ACL is going to be tough for him. But I think there's improvement you can make in the squad currently as constant. You bring in someone like Fran Karasic at right back, for example, I think he could make an improvement on that position in the squad. I think at left back, I'm not convinced about Aziz Bayic. Maybe you give a mm. Callum Elder or a Brad Smith an opportunity or maybe even Alex Gers back. So there's, there's players you can bring in. And in midfield, I would love to see Kenny Dugal get more of an opportunity in there, as well as Denis Genro, who's playing for Toulouse in France, which is, I know they're in the second division, but they are a really big club and he's playing for them quite regularly. So I would like to see a couple of those guys get the opportunity. I'm not so worried about what Moy and Rogic do because they just don't combine well, do they? Every time they seem to play in the same team, it seems like they get in each other's way. So I think it might be a case of one or the other. Because I think it's been said before, but they really are our Lampard and Gerrard, right? They're just getting each other's way. And, and that was the word. Yeah, that was the, uh, my thought exactly. Mm. Uh, we'll switch it, switch it over to Matildas, but before that, uh, give you boys a rest. Quickly, uh, a few uh, housekeeping notes. Uh, you can always uh, contact us on uh, on email, brisbanefootballreview at gmail.com. On Facebook, you actually search Brisbane Football Review, and even though we're known as Raw Review, uh, you can actually type that in, and you will find us. And also, as well, on Twitter at BNE Football. And I know that I didn't, I can't do that as well as James does on the regular show, which That's we have better than show. that Sunday show host, though. I'll about to get to that, and uh, and also our MPL Sunday show with Scott and yours truly. And Alex, I'll let you have a plug uh, quickly. How can uh, show you guys yeah no problem so you can search us on under queensland socceroos fans on facebook and our twitter handle is at socceroos qld and that's uh and uh that's how we uh we move on now to uh the quote to quote our uh football australia's ceo james johnson Australia's favourite team, the Matildas, who have a two-match series scheduled at the end of this month uh, against the reigning and defending World Cup champions, the United States. Uh, The first game played on Saturday, the 27th of November at Stadium Australia. 
in Sydney and then three days later on the 3rd of November at McDonald Jones Stadium in Newcastle. Today the squad was announced. Um, Scott, I'll let you lead off on this one because I know you have some thoughts. Um, this is the squad that Tony Gustafsson has named ahead of this series against the US. Yeah, well, I think it's a pretty good squad, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of the names you expect to be there in terms of um, all of the experience I said we've known for a very long time. I think Tamiki Yallop will make her 100th appearance for the women's national team in this camp. So congratulations to Tamika on that achievement. We've seen a few players do that recently. So it's it's a sign that there are a lot of experienced players and they're all here once again. The one player who is not here this time, which I actually think is probably a good thing, but it's a mismanaged situation in my opinion, is Jamila Rankin. I mean, we're talking about uh, Jamila and Remy Simpson were called up to play the uh, for the island friendly in August, was it? Was that August? I think it was, August, yeah. September, yeah somewhere August, around then, wasn't it? And so, they were yeah. called up for that game as the two players domestically based, and they flew over to Ireland, and they didn't get on the field. And they actually they both stayed in Europe, actually, after that, so they could travel with the team back to Australia for those, those games in Sydney. And if you're going to get players to do that, surely you give them at least a minute on the field, right? as a reward for the effort to do that. And it didn't happen for Jamila. I think she's going to stay here in Queensland and be part of the um, start of the A-League women. So that's an encouraging thing for her to play some football. But all of that was a pretty mismanaged situation. But Tony Gustafson has given a lot of players opportunities over 2021, particularly in the friendlies, it's fair to say. Some of them have done reasonably well, some of them less so. But there's a couple of players in there once again who are going to get their chance. But I think this is going to be a game where he's going to, he's, at least the first game in particular, he's going to want to play the full-strength team at him to see exactly how they can go against what I still consider to be the best team in the world, Team USA. So I think that's going to be what the way it's going to go. And I think this squad, it'll be the experienced players playing. Is this, uh, Alex, is this a uh, team... Bait the squad. Is this very much a dress rehearsal for the uh, the Women's Asian Cup in India next year? Yeah, it certainly looks like it. And I think even with the team selection, you can sort of see that. Uh, it, it seems to be that Tony's found, the, I guess, that, that core group of players that he, he can rely on. And um, it, it, it seems to be the, the case that um, he wants to try out one or two maybe extras in there um, and let's see uh, who makes the cut, I guess, from from here and against, of, of course, the, the reigning world champion. So um, it, it'll be a good test for, for the girls. So, yep. Your thoughts, James? I think it is going to be really interesting um, seeing how they line up. Obviously, they had that training run against the women's national team uh, in the final game of the uh, Olympics group stage, which finished 0-0. And then the glorified training run, which was the uh, bronze medal match from memory. Yeah, I I think it is going to be really interesting. And obviously, it is great seeing uh, the US actually uh, flying out here to play. Yeah, it is. Um, I've got I've got a stat I promise you at the end of this uh, that will actually show how rare this opportunity is to have the US on Australian soil. First time that they've actually been here since the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Uh, speaking of the Olympics uh, and that and that uh, stadium, I'll, I'll lead off with you, Scott, on this one. Um, Homebush for Game One. Oh, well, uh, Stadium Australia. Um, 
Football Australia, I think, have made it sort of, I think, pretty apparent that they, they're going to try and attempt to break the attendance record uh, for the Matildas, which was 20,029 um, down the road at Combank Stadium against Chile in November 2019. Do you feel this is the right venue for a game like this? Yeah, this is absolutely the right venue. I think they'll easily break that record. They might even double it, given that this is Team USA. It does have a, it does, they are the world's best, as I said, and they will attract a lot of people that are watching. I think they're going to really build this game up. I think they'll easily get over 40,000 there, which means if you can get that sort of crowd, it means that you're better off playing there than at um, down the road at um, Combank Stadium. So I think it is the right venue, particularly for this first game, Saturday night, prime time. As long as the weather worked, that we know Sydney spoke about earlier, can be a bit fickle if the weather's not friendly. But as long as the weather's good, I think they'll get a really good crowd out there. And to me, it is the right venue. And it's a it's, it's not just the right venue, it's the right approach to take. This is, if they're going to break that record and set it to the point where it's going to be very, very difficult to break other than in the World Cup, this is the game to do it. Other than England, this is the game to do it. Yep, your thoughts, Alex? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, The the one point I was going to make, and uh, logistically, I'm not sure if I've got this correct, but uh, the men's Sydney derby, is that at Combank? That may also be another reason why it is. Uh, they're playing at Stadium Australia. Um, I I, well, it is the their derby yeah. is at Combank. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess. But yeah, and and I mean that really just it, it plays into the the reasoning why that you know you'd, you'd shift it to football uh, to to Stadium Australia or the, the former Olympic Stadium um, if you want to break that record, which I think they will. Um, It'll be a great turnout uh, to, to watch Matildas play. And uh, as we said, uh, they're Australia's favourite team at the moment. So um, get on board the bandwagon, I say. James? That's pretty much all you can uh, say about that. Uh, the second game, though, in Newcastle is going to be very interesting as well. Uh, I'm guessing that's being done mostly because they need to probably stay in New South Wales as part of their uh, immigration deal. Look, I would, I would think that, the, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about this, is that uh, the game two in Newcastle has been pretty, there's a lot of, been a lot of sort of, you know, talk about, you know, the reason, you know, Newcastle on a Tuesday night for, to host, you know, pretty much what the world's um, number one team, or I think, not, not sure what the rankings are at the moment, but um, it, it, Scott, I'll, I'll sort of um, direct this at you, um, Newcastle, you know, right choice, only choice, yeah, only choice other than back in Sydney. I, I think if they could have got this game down to Melbourne, I think they would have done that. They would have got a, another big crowd down there. I just think that this window, when they had to logistically lock everything in, I don't think the issues in Melbourne were as open as they are now. So maybe you could do it now, but I just think that at the time when they had to make this decision, New South Wales was the only choice. And why not take a game to Newcastle instead of another game in Sydney? Alex, you I get guess a better crowd at Newcastle on a Wednesday night against Team USA than you would for a second time in four days in Sydney. So I think it's the right decision. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Alex. Um, we're, we're, if, if, assuming that, um, how do I put it? With the, if, if they're able to, would this be a game that we would like to have seen in Brisbane? No, especially midweek. And would it draw a decent crowd up here, assuming that the borders are open and that uh, the government sort of, you know, allowed this to happen. Yeah, no, uh, no worries, Adam. Yeah, look, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting hypothetical question. Uh, being a Tuesday night, uh, 
probably makes it a bit iffy in terms of how big the attendance would be. You'd, you'd still imagine it would be an all right, half-decent crowd, whether it would top 15,000, 20,000. I'm not 100% sure I could back that. Um, of course, if it's a Saturday night game, it's a completely different story, or a Friday night game for that matter. Midweek game, look, we'd still bite both. Uh, I'd still bite both your hands off to to um, get that one up here to Brisbane, Adam. But yeah, look, um, I, I don't see it topping fifteen twenty if it if it did come as the midweek game up here to Brisbane. Unfortunately, with um, with the let's life sort of you know at the end of the pandemic, you know as as we know, and or contractual agreement with the New South Wales government. I'll throw this uh, question for you, James, about about the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, What's the, what's the expectations uh, with them? We know that players like uh, Carly Lloyd and probably Megan Rapinoe probably will not travel. I haven't seen a squad yet, but obviously with all the uh, fanfare with um, sort of their retirements and whatnot after the Olympics, do we still expect a strong team that, you know, that has only ever lost one game to the Socceroos? You see that, you know, that trend repeating down under? I think the USA, you know, obviously you're going to uh, lose a bit of the draw with some of the individuals um, not coming, like uh, Rapinoe and whatnot. But you're still bringing the brand of Team USA, and um, they are going to have plenty of uh, still high-quality players. They've got an endless production line uh, for the US women's national team. It's kind of like the All Blacks in rugby. They just seem to keep finding really good players. I don't know where, but good on them for doing so. And I think you're going to find maybe it might give these friendlies a little bit more uh, zeal than perhaps if you had some of those established stars who would only be coming, playing 45 minutes, uh, putting out um, putting out some of the 45-minute uh, performances before going to the bench and signing autographs in the crowd. Some players maybe with a little bit of a point to prove, uh, knowing that this could, for them, be a pretty decent uh, rehearsal as well for what it will be like playing in Australia in the 2023 Women's World Cup. Yeah, no, um, I've just been corrected. That's actually the squad has been announced. Scott, you do your research better than I do, obviously. Um, who are some of the key players that we will see down here for this series? Well, you call it research. I call it quickly going to Wikipedia and seeing if the squad <laughs> is there. It is a it is a very much more inexperienced squad, I will say. that There are some experienced players in there. Becky Sauerbrunn will be... The captain, you've got players like Lindsay Haran and Lynn Williams, who played for Western Sydney for a season. They're all coming, but there's a lot of players who are going to make their debut. The players who won't be there, you mentioned Carly Lloyd's retired. Obviously, Megan, Megan Rapino, Alex Lloyd, Tobin Heath, Kristen Press will all not be there. So it's going to be very much generation next for Team USA. So it'll be good to see from their perspective what the next generation has. But a lot of the big names that we saw, I've seen over the last decade, be so successful won't be there, which is a bit of a shame, but it's still going to be a very formidable USA side. Yeah, I would expect that. Um, last source, Alex? Yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see how that um, how they perform, I guess, with that um, relatively inexperienced squad. Um, I'm sure the, uh, the, the, the older players will take the younger players under their wing. It'll be probably just a case of getting that right blend on the field. Um, for for the US um, uh, team, but 
Um, I think it might actually give the Matildas a bit of a sniff. And, and I mean, we saw how well they played in that first game against Brazil last time out. Um, the second game, I guess, opened up a little bit more. And that, that comes with, you know, the probably the, the fatigue in being able to feel each other out and that kind of stuff. So, um it, it'll be uh, it, it will be very interesting, and and uh, I think uh, you know there'll be a bit of blood in the water, no doubt, for um, for the Matildas to hopefully uh, you know strike uh, against uh, the the US team, uh, whilst uh, you know having a great opportunity to do so, uh, you know, at home and with an inexperienced squad. I don't think it gets much better for the Matildas to to put one maybe two wins on on the, the US uh, ladies. Um, I'll do a quick quick run of the board as far as predictions go for the series. I'll start with you, Scott. I think they'll win the game in Sydney and they'll lose the game in Newcastle. It'll be a split. Uh, James? What Scott said. Alex? Oh, I'm going to go Matildas to win in Sydney and a draw in Newcastle. Yeah, I, I, actually, I actually think that's, it's going to be uh, two draws. Across. That's, my, that's my prediction. Anyway, as promised, I had a stat for about... Uh, the Team USA or the US Women's National Team actually travelling on shores since April since April 2015 there have been they have played in 93 friendlies and when I say friendlies that's that's not including obviously FIFA tournaments and, and whatnot so that's events like terminations she believes cups whatever um, uh, the 93 friendlies the internationals have played uh, the US have only played nine friendlies overseas on foreign soil. This will be games 10 and 11 since 2015. So a very rare treat for, um, for I guess, football fans in general, Matilda's fans, to see Team USA here in Australia, first time in 21 years. Anyway, that'll do it for this edition of our extra show for, for the national teams show. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for having me once again, gentlemen. Yep. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Scott. Last words. So, so what you're saying, Adam, is that the U- Team USA play away from home about as often as uh, Australia play in Brisbane. That's what you're saying. Ah, <laughs> uh, pretty much. <laughs> <bad. laughs> Get one for sure. Uh, uh, James. Thank, thank you, uh, bonus show host. It's been a pleasure. Anyway, uh, you can catch us on all the uh, usual sites. Anyway, have a good night. Uh, cheers for now.